There's a strange symmetry to it all. The play and the player. The moment and the man. The play saved the championship season. The moment saved the life. When both, by all rights, should have led to disaster. It's 2002. An unbeaten Ohio State, the David of the college football season, is nearly three-quarters into what could be a monumental upset of unbeaten Miami, the undisputed giant of the game sitting on a 34-game winning streak. The Buckeyes lead 14-7 in the Fiesta Bowl National Championship game, staring down the goal line at the Miami 7. The scene is dripping with importance. Score, and they take complete command of the game. It's unseasonably warm at Sun Devil Stadium in Phoenix, the dry weather suffocating the dark desert night. Oddly enough, it's Miami, not the Buckeyes who recently left chilly Columbus, struggling with the climate. It's first and goal and Ohio State quarterback Craig Krenzel play fakes and looks into the end zone for tight end Ben Hartsock. The throw was behind Hartsock, and Miami star safety Sean Taylor peels back, picks off the errant pass, and begins to streak out of the end zone. The fastest player on the field, Taylor, is a blur. By the time he hits the 20, there's only one man left who can stop him. Maurice Claret. From Saturday Down South, in partnership with Texas Pete Hot Sauce, I'm Matt Hayes, and this is Saturday Lives Forever, a college football podcast where the stars of yesteryear come to life. This is a story of redemption, and more than anything, a celebration. A life of passion and purpose nearly taken away, but saved at just the right moment. My life started when my football career ended, Maurice Claret says in his autobiography, One and Done. Years after that Fiesta Bowl National Championship game, after he hit rock bottom when his football career flamed out, while he was staring at the four walls of a jail cell in the Toledo Correctional Institution. Claret finally realized there was only one man who could save a life careening out of control. The same man who saved Ohio State's 2002 National Championship season on that fateful play. Make no mistake, those two men are worlds apart now. The All-American at Ohio State with the sports world at his fingertips, and the man who today barely watches college football and calls himself a social entrepreneur, and is one of the most sought motivational speakers in sports. He rescued a season in 2002. He rescues young men now, counseling those whose lives are or could be recklessly out of control like his once was. They all need the same thing, someone to reach inside with a strong hand, grab the ball of life, and yank it away to reveal the truth. The undeniable living proof that is Maurice Claret. It all began to unravel for Claret after that fateful night in the desert in Arizona. After that critical play in the third quarter became the turning point in a game for the ages and the storied history of Ohio State football. 
Taylor was racing past the Ohio State offense and had the speed and angle on everyone to turn the interception into six points and change the complexion of the biggest game of the season. Then Claret reached into Taylor's midsection with his strong right arm and grabbed the ball. There was nothing else that could be done. The speed of Taylor was carrying momentum past everyone on an Ohio State offense that was half stunned and half out of position. The only thing left to do was grab the ball and pull with everything he had. Once his arm was around the ball and he and Taylor shared possession, Claret twisted his 230-pound body to slow Taylor's momentum and force him to the ground to try and protect the ball. As they fell to the ground, Claret wrestled the ball from Taylor and saved a certain pick six, a loss of momentum, and who knows what else from the supremely elite Hurricanes. Four plays later, all without Claret, who was sidelined for a series, and only one series, with a shoulder sprain from the fall with Taylor, Ohio State kicked a field goal to go up 17-7. Just how important was that Claret strip and recover that led to those three points? Ohio State didn't score again in regulation. And more than 20 minutes later, Miami tied the game at 17 on the last play of regulation, a 40-yard field goal that would have won the game, but for Claret's remarkable play. Claret finished off Miami in the second overtime, scoring from five yards out with a nifty hop step and power move at the goal line. The Ohio State defense did the rest on the ensuing Miami series. But it was so much more than that national championship game. It was the way this unique freshman tailback from Youngstown energized a program that hadn't won anything of significance in decades its last national championship in 1970. A program that tried for decades to replace legendary coach Woody Hayes and never really could. So they ran off John Cooper after the 2000 season because he couldn't beat Michigan and hired a Division I AA coach named Jim Tressel who won four national titles at Youngstown State and knew all about Claret, the star tailback from Harding High School. Tressel convinced Claret to sign with Ohio State over a handful of the sport's heavyweights, including Miami. He then wasted little time getting Claret involved in an offense that quickly became one-dimensional, the talent of Claret superseding the game management of Krenzel. Claret's season was, in a word, phenomenal. He had 1,341 yards from scrimmage and 18 touchdowns, despite missing three full games and the majority of a fourth with various injuries. Had he played a full 14-game schedule, his season totals could have approached 2,000 yards and well over 20 touchdowns. All of that as a freshman, in a conference that places a high priority on defense first, on a team whose offense was built around him, and every single defense knew it. In the season opener against Texas Tech, He ran for 175 yards and three touchdowns on just 21 carries. And after he barely played in week two in a rout of outman Kent State, top 15 Washington State came to Columbus and Claret didn't disappoint. By the time Ohio State was finishing up its third straight victory to begin the season, Claret had 230 yards rushing on 31 carries and scored two touchdowns. It was a career best day in one of the seven times he rushed for at least 100 yards in 10 full games. He was so good, so quick, college coaches and NFL scouts declared him ready for the NFL, 
an otherwise absurd statement that rarely, if ever, was heard. But with each big game performance, the accolades piled up. The talk of challenging the NFL's rule of entering the league early grew stronger, and the little things that annoy players became big things that distracted Claret. It came to a head days before the Fiesta Bowl when a close childhood friend of Claret's was murdered in Youngstown. Claret wanted to leave Phoenix and return to Youngstown for the funeral, but couldn't because NCAA rules prohibited Ohio State from paying for Claret's plane ticket. Claret, who was a toddler when his father left home, who shared a single family home growing up with his mother, grandmother, two brothers, and 11 cousins, had to pay for the ticket and only then could Ohio State petition the NCAA for reimbursement. In other words, he wasn't leaving Phoenix for his friend's funeral. Life's a whole lot more important than football, Claret said that week in Phoenix. It's just a game. Days later, Claret would play his final game at Ohio State. Days before the beginning of his sophomore season in 2003, Ohio State suspended Claret for a year after he allegedly received improper benefits. It didn't take long for Claret to leave school and hire an attorney and challenge the NFL's underclassmen rule in federal court. He lost. A year later, he showed up at the NFL Combine with the rest of his draft-eligible class and was nearly 30 pounds overweight. He was drafted in the third round by the Denver Broncos, but was cut before the start of the 2005 season and never played it down in the league. Four months later, on New Year's Day 2006, police said Claret robbed two people outside a dance club in Columbus. Eight months later, while waiting for his day in court, Claret was arrested again, this time for leading police on a high-speed chase. When Claret was finally stopped, police found a loaded AK-747 assault rifle, two loaded handguns, and a bottle of Grey Goose vodka. Claret was sentenced to seven and a half years in prison and served three and a half. It was in prison at the Toledo Correctional Institution where Claret began to blog about his life. He wasn't allowed access to the internet, so he would send his blog to his girlfriend, who would then post it online. He wrote of recovery, of finding a meaning and purpose for who he was, what he had become, and where he wanted to be in life. He was the problem, he said. His life changed when football ended. He eventually founded The Red Zone, a behavioral health agency in Youngstown designed to provide mental health services for the needy. He has become a highly sought motivational speaker, preaching to young people the ills of fame, fortune, and self-evolved living. Three years ago, South Carolina coach Will Muschamp invited Claret to speak to his Gamecocks team. Incredibly raw, incredibly real, Muschamp said of Claret's speech. I was thinking, well, this would be good for our guys to hear his story of redemption. By the time he was done, I said to our staff, hell, Everyone in this world needs to hear his story. Sometimes life is a blur, streaking by and careening off course when you least expect it. And sometimes you reach out and wrestle it under control before it's too late. There was only one man who could stop Maurice Claret, and he did it just in time. Okay, speaking of legendary players, let's talk about legendary flavors. So the good folks at Texas Pete sent a box the other day and it was full 
of legendary flavor, people. I mean, every wing sauce you could imagine, every barbecue sauce you could imagine, salsa. Look, I made some chili the other day, and I thought, all right, I'm gonna make this thing unique now. And I threw a little sauteed garlic flavor hot sauce in there, and man, oh man, I'm talking phenomenal. So now I'm sitting here, I'm now finding ways to make things on the grill, in the smoker, on the cooktop, because I'm trying to find a way to get these Texas Pete sauces in my food. They're so good. I had the sriracha sauce the other day, and I threw it on grits. And oh my gosh, I'm talking barbecue sauce on pulled pork on a smoker. I'm talking about barbecue sauce, the Eastern Carolina barbecue sauce on chicken. There's so many different things to use this great sauces. Listen, visit TexasPete.com for recipes, hot apparel like Texas Pete shirts and hats, and here's the key. Take 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order with promo code SaturdayDownSouth at TexasPete.com. Down, set, sauce like you mean it. It's a pleasure now to welcome Bob Eckhart to Saturday Lives Forever. Bob is a Fulbright scholar and taught more than for more than two decades at Ohio State. He also co-wrote Maurice Claret's biography entitled One and Done, How My Life Started When My Football Career Ended. Bob, welcome and thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So I guess first question right out of the gate, Bob. Um, how did you meet Maurice and how did your friendship develop from there? All right, great. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question and it's a... It's a funny story. For for about 10 years, what I tell people is I was the guy on the other end of the phone when the academic counselors would call and I'd pick it up and they'd say, Bob, we've got a little bit of a situation here. <laughs> and, and so, so in, in January of 2002, uh, I got that call. And, and, you, and you might remember, or, or maybe, you know, I can refresh the listeners, Maurice was, was the first guy who left high school early. He really created that trend. He graduated right. uh, from Warren G. Harding in December of 2001. And, and, you know, he really, he had wanted to do what Quinn Ewers just did. He had wanted to leave at the end of his junior year. But he, um, you know, he goes out to the... Um, the all-star game in San Antonio right around New Year's 2002. Um, he then gets on the plane. He shows up at Ohio State. Uh, they throw him in some classes. They try to find a place for him to live. You know, nobody had ever done this before. There wasn't a great uh, protocol for it. And then in about the second or third week of the quarter, I get the call. And, uh, I, you know, I was, I was, I'm always happy to get these calls, you know, um, without going into the other guys I worked with in the nineties, um, sure. I found all of them to be, you know, pretty exceptional individuals. And, and what I always said was, you know, talent gets you, uh, to a certain level, but to play at the level that Maurice and some of these other guys that I worked with played at, you know, you had to be really perceptive, intuitive, smart. And so, um, you know, I, I show up at the Woody Hayes practice facility uh, a couple of days later and, and I, we get introduced and, 
and then it's just uh, off to the races because he's already a week or two behind in his classes and and um and so then it just it just went from there so Ohio State is such a huge entity, Bob. You know this as well as anyone. In the classroom, outside the classroom, how intimidating is that for any freshman to assimilate, much less an 18-year-old who grew up in the tough situation he grew up in Youngstown? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we it, it was really great to do with the to do the book with him because I got to ask him to reflect on those times, and he um, he said he wasn't he wasn't really scared about the schoolwork, uh, not because he um, uh, had some inflated perception of himself as a student, but he, he understood the system that if he produced on the field, uh, everything would get taken care of academically. And, and he right. overstated his understanding of that was not quite as, as clear as it should have been. Um, yeah. You know, the, um, uh, the counselors can help him get into the right classes and, and they can um, remove obstacles, but there's still just a tremendous amount of work that he needed to do. And it, it took him a little while to, to realize that. So let, let's talk about now the, the book. And I, I think the title's fantastic. Um, One and done how my life started when my football career ended. Yeah. So yeah. how, how did you guys get together to write that? Did he reach out right. to you and did he say, sure. look, I, I, sure. I want to explain my life and what happened when I was in, in the uh, Toledo Correctional Institute and how, and how I, that day came when I realized I'm the only one that can change me? Great. Yeah. Well, you know, we, um, we were, I, you know, I would say we were together the whole time he was at OSU. And then, and then you know, after he left OSU, we kind of lost touch. I, I would sort of just bump into him every once in a while downtown. Um, but then when he was in prison for four years, we were pen pals. And, um, you know, he, he talks about this in the book. Like, he, he wrote letters. Like, every day he'd write eight or ten letters to people. And he was getting a lot of mail. And um, uh, it was almost sort of like, you know, I would send him a letter. And within, like, 72 hours, I would have a reply. And it was just – it was not a sustainable um, time span for me, I would have to wait a few weeks. I just, you know, I couldn't write to him every other day. So, right, right. so we wrote, we, we wrote letters cause he didn't have much else to do. He was just reading and writing, uh, probably 20 hours out of the day cause he wasn't sleeping much. And, um, he was just kind of working on himself. So when, when he was still in prison, he, um, uh, he started to think about doing a book. He, he really wanted to tell his story. You know, he was reading a lot of books. You, you know, he was reading about Andrew Carnegie and these other sort of great men of America. And he wanted to tell his story. And even while he was in prison, I think he said, like, Michael Vick's production company had reached out to him. Somebody else reached out to him. You know, people were really interested in his story. Um, and so, so he gets out of prison and he, he spends a few, and, and we met once or twice after he got out of prison, and he spent a few years trying to get his feet under him in terms of business. And then by about 2015 or 2016, I had a lot of time on my hands unexpectedly. And I just was like, you know, Maurice, if you want to do that book, we can do that book. Let's do it. And so, um, you know, he was living in Columbus. And we would just meet 
once a week at the at the local library. It's a, one of the branches of the local library. We would meet and you know, we just I would interview him. I'd ask him all kinds of questions, just get him talking. And right. um, and, and we did this for a few months. I think I have 12 or, or 13 interviews in, in my iPad and I would transcribe those. And then, you know, I spent a few years reading, reading every other uh, football memoir, autobiography that I could um, just to kind of understand the genre and not just football, but other sorts of basketball, baseball players who do these co-authored books to try to figure out about this, what the style should be. And, um, and then, you know, I guess it was the fall of 19, the book was ready to go and, and he printed it up, you know, we self-published and uh, we just got the book into the market. And then the next thing you know, he's on the Today Show with Al Roker and it was really going, it was really going great guns until COVID and then we had to shut things down a little bit. Right, right. So that's fantastic. What, what a great story. So let me ask you this. You, you've been corresponding with him. You knew him for so long. You've been corresponding with him. You knew him. Now, when you sat down for those interviews, did you hear things where, that you never had heard before and that you said, wow, wow, oh. and it started to unra- un- un- unravel and you started to understand yeah. who he was and what he's about? Yeah, 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 every every day, every day. You know, um, and I tell you, I don't consider myself a hugely naive guy, but um, there were definitely some stories that he was telling that I that just you know knocked my socks off, and and these are the stories that get in the book about well you know I knew he was like I knew middle school for him was kind of a rough period, but I didn't realize he started selling drugs when he was 11 years old, and he got introduced to this by the teacher's assistant at his school, you know wow. like that kind of a story. <laughs> It's just not, I mean, you know, I've, I, uh, I'm an educator and I've read a lot about urban education, inner city education, but you, you know, these kinds of stories don't make it into our casebooks, you know, and then, and then I kind of learned a little bit about the nuts and bolts of, I don't know, being a, a young kid drug dealer. Like he, he starts stealing cars at the age of 12 because you know, you have a, a limited market in your neighborhood and you need to go to other neighborhoods to have a bigger sales. I mean, a lot of this wow. is kind of business sales marketing 101, but he starts stealing cars at the age of 12 so he can expand his market and grow his business. And, you know, and then he drops, you know, he, he drops some real nuggets or, or pearls of wisdom where he, he says, like, you know, he didn't love selling drugs. He would have sold water bottles. He would have sold anything, but nobody wanted that. They wanted drugs. So, so yeah. I every time we talked, he he dropped things on me that just uh, made my head spin. He's um he's first off he's a, people don't realize this. It's easy to see any player like this or any person really that gets incarcerated and you just throw him away like they're nothing. He's an incredibly bright guy, right? And incredible and a guy who has a a grasp on life and like you know what it's all about. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I knew I knew from the moment I met with him that first time at the Woody that this is a smart guy. This is a guy who thinks about things real hard. This is a guy who has a plan. You know, he even even in his freshman year at Ohio State, he he was looking at the charts. They have these charts that talk about 
how many hits? How many hits can a running back withstand in his career? And how many hits do they take in a game or in a season? And, and he was already making calculations. You know, that was kind of why he wanted to um, skip his senior year in high school because he had nothing more to prove. And then, right. you know, he gets to Ohio State. He's taking a lot of hits. He was, you know, I, 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 I forgot the first time I met him, in, in mid-January of 2002, he had a big cast on his left hand because as soon as he showed up at Ohio State, they they cut his thumb. You know, they did a surgery on him that was sort of overdue, a, a senior year football injury to his thumb that hadn't been treated. So he shows up, he gets his first surgery. And then, you know, in the fall, if you remember in that second or third game of the season, he um, takes a hit on his knee and he, he had right, knee right. surgery in, in, the, in the first half of the season. He has knee surgery that he recuperates from and gets back out on the field. So he, he always struck me as a super perceptive guy who was always looking to the future. Now, Bob, I, I realize Maurice blames no one but himself, but, but with the new name, image, and likeness rules in college sports, could that have helped him in college if, if for no other way allow him to earn money and live more comfortably? Or would that have just well, well, would that just contributed to what what the problems were? No, sure, sure. You know his whole his whole goal his goal in high school was to get out of Youngstown safely. Not, nothing against Youngstown, but you know sure. he he wanted to he wanted to be safe. You know this is a guy who had his house shot up in a drive by when he was thirteen years old, one o'clock in the morning. He's playing video games with his brother, and there's a drive by in his house. This is a guy who watched. A lot of his childhood buddies get murdered, like kids his age. And so he just, he just, you know, he wanted to be safe. He wanted to be financially secure. And, um, and, and I think if, if name, image, and likeness had, had been around then, he might have slowed down a little bit. He might have um, felt more secure that he didn't need to uh, hop to the NFL so soon. Um, but he, you know, he has no regret or resentment about that. And, you know, he's happier now than he was when he was playing. I, I've never seen him more. I, I've never seen him more focused and intentional about what he's doing. And I think the subtitle of the book says it all. Um, how my life started when my football career ended. You know, one of, one of the many themes that he develops uh, when he's doing his public speaking is that a lot of times sports is just recess. You know, when, when we're school kids, what, what we love most is recess. We love playing, but it's not right. real life. You know, you got to learn, you got to work, you got to achieve. And, and for him, sports was recess. It was never going to be his life. And then, um, you know, he, his football career ended prematurely, which I think he has zero regrets about. Uh, and I think he's happier now doing business. And he, I tell you, he has that same competitiveness now that he that I saw when I worked with him. So he's he's in a great place, and and he's real happy for the guys. He's and, and, and you know not just for the guys. He's happy for the female college athletes who are going to take advantage of NIL. He he's just happy about the way things are evolving. So. Um... I don't know. I'm sure you've watched him speak to to teams. I've talked to a couple couple coaches that have had him speak to their teams. Um, 
Will Muschamp specifically said it was just phenomenal. He said it was raw. It was real. He said and every single player in that meeting room could not take their eyes off of Maurice. He's found himself now, you know, what what he is and, and, and something he's really good at now, hasn't he? Yeah, for sure. He's and you know, and I've heard him speak not just to athletes, but to educators, business people, and you know, there there is something about him. And you know, I was, I I was real honored and privileged to get to sit with him in that library for three months and and record these conversations. There's something about the way he speaks that's authentic, like absolutely authentic, and he. I mean, I don't know if you've seen him lately, but he's still totally jacked, right? Right. So like we right. we walk through we walk through airports together, and and people are like turning and staring, and and we have people come up and and I take their picture with him, and these are young kids, sometimes young young women, and I and I'm like, hey, do you even know who that is? And they're like, well, not really. We saw him. <laughs> We, um, we snuck a photo and we sent it to our dad and our dad was like, that's Maurice Claret. You got to go get your picture with him. So he has this, like, he just has this aura when he walks into a room that he's someone you want to talk to and someone you want to listen to. So he, he speaks also, not just from this position of, of power, but he's so, he, he, he leads with vulnerability. He talks about his own vulnerabilities. Like I've never heard anybody drop within the first five, 10 minutes of their talk that they are still on mental health meds. They meditate every day that mental wellness for them is an ongoing challenge. And, and so he speaks with such honesty that people just, they want to, they want to connect with him and they do. And he, he's honest and he, he, he is who he is. He's just, He's comfortable in his own skin. Do you, Bob, do you see him? I, I know he's he's talked a lot about how, you know, football is not his life and he doesn't like talking about it that much. Do you see him ever getting back into sports, not competitively, but maybe as, I, I don't know, a coach, an advisor, some somewhere along the lines, an analyst? Or you think he's just, he's happy where he is right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. He did just, um, he's, he's been involved in a few podcasts over the last few years. And he started one with um, another OSU guy, Jay Richardson, who's in the, the local media here. Uh, right, he was right. a local kid who was, a, I think, a DN with the Raiders. And, and, so, and they do a lot of, of analytical conversations about uh, the things that are happening currently. And, and I think he, you know, he, he did spend so much time, thought, and effort uh, developing a deep understanding of football, you know, it's really very, very rarely uh, do we watch games together. But if we go do an event during a game to hear his perceptions, you know, what he sees that I don't even think other like football people see, it's stunning. So I, I think, I hope that he continues to do podcasts, get involved, maybe does analytical work, because I think he understands like not just the, the X's and O's, but he understands the players. Like he can see things that players are doing or not doing, whether they lower their shoulder or whether they uh, 
square their hips or he sees right. things and not just not just about football but about basketball too like you know it would be like if um it, you know if some some grand chess master watched a chess match they would see things that you and I don't see like we might know how the p- pieces on the board move but we don't see things getting set up and the moves that people are making or the moves they're setting up so so I hope he he does that and I know he he has a real um affinity for the athletes like he just cares he cares deeply like whenever we go do any event he gives everybody he puts his phone number on the board and and you know we um uh there were some OSU English classes who used his book last semester and we did zooms uh with those students and these are just like you know farm kids from Ohio reading his right. book but some of the messages he got um, from the female students who um, had mental health struggles, eating disorders, had been uh, survivors of sexual assault. Like, like everyone is just reaching out for him. And he reaches, like, you take one step towards him, he takes two steps towards you. And so I, I think he will continue to be involved um, peripherally, but it would certainly be to everyone's advantage if he uh, had a, a bigger platform um, and, and could interact with larger audiences. Cause I think the things he has to contribute are unique. The book is one and done how my life started when my football career ended. Bob, thank you so much for this deep revealing dive on Maurice and thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here and I hope everybody gets the chance to hear from Maurice sometime soon or to read his book. That was episode four of Saturday Lives Forever, season one. Check back for more episodes or for episodes you missed at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.